Hello and welcome back to the Culture Blast podcast. I'm your host, Farah Nayeri, and I'm delighted to celebrate with this episode the second anniversary of our show. As you know, Culture Blast is a collection of in-depth interviews with some of the greatest personalities in the world of culture. Today we bring you Ruben Ostlund, the Swedish filmmaker who earlier this year won his second Palme d'Or, the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival, for a movie that you've either seen or should see, The Triangle of Sadness. As The Guardian wrote recently, the film contains, quote, an overdose of schadenfreude, tapping into the primal appeal of seeing the 1% floundering at sea, and is, quote, a nasty glimpse into the lifestyles of the rich and fameless. Ruben's previous films, The Square and Fosse Majeure, have also won him acclaim, both from festivals and critics, and from the general public. Ruben Ostland, welcome to the Culture Blast podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruben. As uh, you don't know yet, we are celebrating our second birthday with you. And it's wonderful to add your voice to our collection of interviews with personalities from the world of culture. Just to mention a few names, the people who came before you included Ai Weiwei, Nile Rogers, Emma Thompson, Wayne McGregor. I hope you're in good company. <laughs> to start with, I wanted to congratulate you, Ruben, on winning your second Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival just a few months ago in May. Only a handful of other directors have had this privilege in the history of the festival, and they include Francis Ford Coppola, Shohei Imamura, Ken Loach, Michelle Haneke. I've covered the festival for many years, and I know that to be a two-time winner is truly special. I wanted to know what it meant to you, however, to win the Palme d'Or, your second. And what does the Cannes Film Festival represent to you today in a world where streaming services are all-powerful, that films are now watched predominantly at home on screens that can be as small as a smartphone rather than in movie theaters? Well, first of all, to win the the Palme d'Or the first time uh, was something that I never thought I would be privileged enough to experience. Uh, it was something that came kind of unexpectedly. All the all the positive sides of it, of it, of course, is that you get a lot of attention for a film. But then it also puts a certain kind of pressure on your shoulders when you're starting to work with your upcoming film. Uh, so when I was working with Triangle of Sadness, uh, I felt like everybody's just expecting it to be in competition in Cannes. Uh, so uh, I was kind of nervous to to make it into competition. When we made it into competition, then I was super happy and I felt, okay, my job is done. All the distributors, their expectations are fulfilled, so to speak. But then we had a really good screening in, in, in Cannes. Uh, it was the first weekend. It was maybe one of the best screenings I have experienced of any of my films. And when that happens, you start to breathe. <laughs> about yeah, maybe yeah. getting a prize. Uh, <laughs> so when we were invited for the, for, the, for the word ceremony, it doesn't mean anything. Of course, you can be invited without getting any prize, but still there's a lot of speculations going on. And you can tell which other teams that are in there, which other films that are represented. And finally, it's only one prize left. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I'm sitting there in the audience. I'm looking at my colleagues, my friends that I've been working with for 20 years and we have been going through so many different stages in our sure, career. Yeah. 
Uh, and we are starting to realize we are going to win the Palm d'Or again. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was a, a second, a millisecond where I felt, do I really want to go through this again? <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's a crazy year that follows after a Golden Palm. But, but then, okay, yeah, yeah, it's so much traveling, so much. You get a lot of a possibility to get your films out in the media and talk about your film and so on, which, which is a great thing. But it also takes a lot of work, of course. But this time, in some ways, I think it also took away some pressure from my shoulders. Uh, the, the first palm is making everybody look at you in a little skeptical way, you know. Hmm? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then when, when the second palm comes, then it's also for the jury to say the first jury was right to giving me the palm. So at least right now, I feel that <laughs> Uh, take it away yeah. some pressure on my shoulders. Yeah, I mean, you got enough validation now, haven't you, uh, Ruben? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two palm doors instead of one. Yeah, that's that's validation, I guess. Your palm door winner, the latest one, Triangle of Sadness, it kind of split the critics in Cannes, but it is turning into something of a cult movie with audiences everywhere. And uh, you describe it as a wild and entertaining roller coaster for adults. And it refers to triangle of sadness. That expression, I guess, refers to the frown lines that are located between a person's eyebrows, which indicate how much worry and stress they've had in their life. And I guess it's something that plastic surgeons and the fashion and beauty industry focus on quite a bit. But to me, the word triangle also refers to the three parts of your, your film. You know, the first part showing interactions between a young couple, a male and a female model. And the second part on this spectacular yacht full of billionaires and members of 1% acting like they own the world. And then the third part on a desert island. And I won't say further. It looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? <laughs> so what do you do? I sell shit. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I command you, enjoy the moment. No. No? No. <laughs> what? You say no to me? No, no. So it's yes. Yeah, no. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, your film, The Triangle of Sadness, uh, this palm winner, you know, it's an acquired taste because, I mean, as you know, there have been critics who have been very, very harsh about it. And then there have been others like Michel Simon of Positif, who is probably one of the most famous film critics alive, who gave it four stars in that rating, that ranking, you know, the screen daily at Cannes, you know, where they all give stars. I think that there are elements of it that that can come across as caricature and farce and that can seem facile in some way to some people. And then there are elements of it that, that, uh, that are incredibly deep. And we'll get to that later. But, you know, how have you felt about this sort of reaction from the critics, which is in some cases has been harsh? Uh, I think the harshest ones actually have been kept away from me. So I, I don't know <laughs> okay. about that. But, you know... I think I'm used to uh, splitting up the critics. It have been like that basically from my first film. My 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 feature debut was called The Guitar Mongoloid, and I did a quite fun thing with it when I released it on DVD. Mm -hmm. You know, so on the back of the cover of the DVD, I had all the good reviews. It was like it's the best Swedish film of the year and 
all the five stars were <laughs> on the back. But then when you came home and you're about to put the DVD in the DVD player and you had to open up the cover, then on the inside I had collected all the bad critics. So it right. said the worst Swedish film of the year and all the, <laughs> all the one grades that I got. When you're moving closer to like comedy or, as you said, farce or... I don't know how to describe my films myself, but yeah. uh, then uh, also uh, out of tradition, the, the grade go down a little bit. Comedy is not considered something that is uh, as prestigious to deal with as mm-hmm. drama. Uh, so there are a lot of elements that are like this that are connected to it. Uh, and yeah, I am I am a little bit used to it, but of course I get sad. I want everybody to love my films. So before we move on to your childhood and formative years, I wanted to ask you, I mean, put to you this question that I was putting to you earlier. I remember interviewing Wim Wenders around the time that he was releasing his extraordinary documentary, Pina, about Pina Bausch, who was his friend, the great choreographer. And he told me that making a full-length feature film was just such an extraordinarily complicated, time-consuming and painstaking task, you know, from the production and getting that together and the money to the filming, to the distribution, to the release on in movie theaters, that he himself was more inclined to shoot documentaries nowadays, which seems to be the case. Now, what are your thoughts on the challenges of filmmaking and how difficult and terrifying do you find them? Mm, I agree on win in many ways because... One of the great obstacles of making feature films is that it's so far from input to output. Exactly. It's so far from the point where you get an idea that you want to make a feature film out of until the feature film is finished. So, uh, I mean, three or five years have been right. the time range for me. And uh, you have to both protect your idea uh, so you don't uh, take away the u- unique qualities with it at the same time as you have to uh, get uh, uh, input from people in order to improve it and fight with financing the film, yeah. uh, costing the film and so on. It's a very long process. It's almost more similar to being an architect, I feel, sometimes than any other art form. They also have uh, such a long process when they are when they are starting a project. I have tried to avoid the biggest obstacles when it comes to financing by having my own production company. So I work with a friend of mine that I met on film school in Gothenburg, Erik Hemmendorf, and he has been the producer uh, on all my films, basically. So we have been working for 20 years, and we have decided that when we want to start a project, uh, we should be able to do it and take a financial risk ourselves. So uh, we don't want to end up in a situation that we are put on hold and uh, can only start a project when, when someone else says so. So very often when we have decided, okay, now we want to start a project, we approach like the Swedish Film Institute and yeah. ask them, okay, we're going to make this film. Do you want to be on board or not? Because that this train is leaving now. <laughs> and of course, that puts a certain kind of pressure on them that they also have to join in. Um, but for me, the, the, the energy that you have in the start of a project is kind of important because if, if you're put on hold and you then you start to question your idea, you start to think about, should I do something else? Is this the right project? That is very dangerous for the creative process. 
So that, that is one way that, that I have tried to avoid uh, the obstacles that is with feature films. Okay, that, that sounds smart. To move on to the subject of your childhood and your formative years, about which I know nothing, you describe yourself as an agitator, and I know uh, that you grew up on an island just off Gothenburg in, in Sweden uh, with your older brother and a single mom who was left-leaning and had, I think, communist ideas. I mean, have you always been an agitator, even when you were a little boy? Were you like an agitating boy, like a mischievous boy? I don't know, but um, I think I was someone that wanted to make things happen. Yeah. Uh, and um, I was probably one of the boys in the peer group that was like pushing for us to start to film our hobbies. Uh, <laughs> we, we had the possibility to borrow a, a video camera from the commune and an editing table from the commune, a VHS mm -hmm. video camera. And I, I started to film my friends when we were windsurfing and mountain biking mm -hmm. and rock climbing. And then I, when it comes to my agitating side, maybe it comes from my upbringing. Uh, because in my family, there were always loud political discussions. Right. Uh, um, my, my brother, he, he became more like a, a, a liberal or a right-wing liberal, at least as we call it in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there was always a political debate in my home over the Sunday dinners. And, and we had a lot of fun uh, talking politics. And, and uh, even if we didn't agree on each other, uh, it, it was something that was... So you were, you were, you were more left-leaning? You were more like your mom, I guess? Or? Yes, I, I'm a little bit more left-leaning than my brother. Uh, I mean, my mother, she became a left-wing during the 60s. And uh, mm -hmm. she was working uh, as a primary school teacher in one of the... Uh, areas in uh, outside Malmö, the third biggest city in yep. Sweden, that they had some problem, like social economical problems. Uh, and I think that uh, her working in this area at the same time as she got introduced to these like uh, socialistic ideas, it became something that became a fundament for her uh, as a human right. being. So, so she still is a, a big supporter of, of socialistic ideas. And she's one of the few that actually calls herself a communist uh, even these days. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, so there, there's a lot of like uh, uh, discussions that, that comes, comes from that. But, and one thing that I think I got from my upbringing also from Marx, um, yeah. because, you know, Marx was also one of the founders of sociology, Mm -hmm. And sociology is a beautiful topic because it always puts the human being into a context and, and looks our, on us and our behavior from a context. So shows that our behavior comes very much of the setup of a given situation. I see. But can you talk about sports as well? Because I think you were very good at a number of sports, skiing and... Yeah, I mean... During the 70s and 80s, when I was brought up, the skiing and the idea about free skiing to, to be a ski bum, as it was called back then, mm -hmm. you know, spend the winters on a ski resort. <laughs> it, it was something that I got very interested in. And I watched a lot of ski films, which basically is like half an hour long uh, images of people skiing and trying to do spectacular things cut to uh, music. So no narrative, nothing like that. And uh, I also started to 
work as a ski filmmaker uh, after I had finished school or my, my gymnasium. Uh, I was traveling around in, in Europe and in North mm-hmm. America and filming skiing in the winters and then editing the material together in the, in the summers. And then we did um, half an hour VHS copies of these films that we sold through uh, ski magazines like Powder and Skiing and so on. So this was basically my ski school, uh, filming school. I see. I, I easily got like the 10,000 hours of, of practice right. by, by filming skiers in the snow. Yeah, you mean uh, of filming or of skiing, the 10,000 hours? Uh, you get both. When you're making ski films, <laughs> you get both at the same time. <laughs> okay, but so let's go back a little bit because I'd like to know as a little boy growing up when and how you figured out you wanted to be a filmmaker. I think it was because of Michael Jackson's Thriller uh, wow. music video. Okay. Uh, it, it was a very strong memory for me when that uh, music video was released. Uh, right. And uh, there was a friend of mine that had a VHS recorder that could record a video when it was broadcasted on the Swedish television and we could wow. watch it over and over again. <laughs> and that, it, it, yeah, so... Michael Jackson's thriller was uh, was what made me want to be a film director. That's amazing. I mean, can you tell me specifically what what about it drew you? Was it was it the music, his dancing, or just the spookiness of it? Or I think it was the spookiness of it. Of yeah. course, uh, uh, Michael Jackson's performance and his persona and everything was also something that you got impressed of, but maybe you couldn't really verbalize that in that age. I, mm-hmm. I guess I was around 10 years old or something yeah. like that. But it was also the technique that came during that era, the, mm-hmm. the VHS camera that all of a sudden was affordable, so uh, people could buy a VHS camera and you could start filming yourself without the advanced process of developing the film and, and so on. So, uh, the, yeah, it, it was probably the development of the technique also that made me uh, interested in, in the profession. Yeah, and I guess you must be a visual guy on some level. Um, I mean, I think that. Well, well, my mother was a painter uh, yeah. also. She was working as a primary school teacher, but she was also painting a lot. And mm. uh, she came from the northern part of Sweden, from a small village on the border to Finland, that was uh, that is called Haparanda, mm-hmm. and she moved away from Haparanda when she was uh, around nineteen years old. She she moved to the southern part of Sweden to study, and she never moved back. But she always wanted to go go back to to the northern parts of Sweden, mm-hmm. and to to process this, she started to paint, and she was painting. Uh, bird's eye perspective uh, the city of Haparanda Uh, so painting after painting had the same kind of perspective over the city and with the the snow on the streets uh, the very characteristic light that are in the northern part of Sweden Mm -hmm. and a lot of small figures small human beings on the streets and she could tell stories of every single one of them Oh. Uh, you know, this is Malofia. She was always chasing us when we were uh, taking a shortcut over her property <laughs> and uh, all of these kind of stories. And and she always invited me uh, to the process of, uh, of of her painting. She always, even when I was really, really small, she asked me, come in, have a look on the painting that I'm working on. 
can you tell me what you think? Wow, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. mm. And is it something that you don't think look uh, like it should? What would you change? And uh, in some ways, I think that made me trust my own instrument. It made me uh, get um, say, a confidence when it came to uh, what I actually thought when I was when I was looking yeah. at the, the pictures. And do you paint yourself or? I have been painting. Um, I am. I'm, I'm coming also from a background of graphical design because oh, right. when I was in, in gymnasium, I was studying graphic design, and okay. I, I learned like programs like Photoshop and Illustrator and so on. So, yeah, I, I would say that it's it's a part of my process to um, storyboard the pictures that is that I put uh, quite much work on. Um, the the topics of beauty and sexuality are some of the dominant themes of uh, the Triangle of Sadness, and you've said that you started thinking about these themes, beauty, sexuality, around the time of the Me Too movement. And uh, can I get you to talk about that more? How Me Too sort of triggered you thinking about these things? Well, I want to go back a little bit further back before that because yeah. I, I think that the topic and the thematic of trying to find it started when I met my wife yeah. mm-hmm. uh, eight years ago and she is working as a fashion photographer Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I got very curious of uh, hearing the stories that she had to tell about the, the fashion industry and, and her experiences of, of working mm-hmm. in that profession. She told me a lot about the, the models uh, and uh, I got especially interested in the male models, right? Uh, because they're like being a male model is not really a high status profession, right? Um, right. Models come from many different parts of society, and quite a few of them come from working class. And and she told me about one uh, friend of hers that when he was nineteen years old, he was working as a car mechanic, right? Uh, and he got street costed. So someone was asking him on the street, do you want to try yeah. out to be a model? And he's like, yeah, sure, I can try that. Mm. And two years later, he's one of the best paid male models uh, in the whole industry of, of, of fashion. And he does a perfume campaign that makes him basically world famous. If I would show you the picture, you would probably recognize it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so for very quickly, I've been traveling class society and gotten used to a certain kind of lifestyle and the ticket to this world was, of course, his beauty, his looks. Yeah. Uh, but when he is up there on the, on the peak of his career, so to speak, he's starting to realize, I'm losing my hair. I'm getting bald. Right. Uh, so he's losing his currency. Yeah. And yeah. he went to his agent and he told his agent, okay. And his agent was uh, looking at this hair problem. And he said, okay, maybe you have two more years uh, working as a model. Oh my God. Uh, but we also have another problem, and it's that you are too connected with the perfume brand uh, that, that made you famous. Oh. So no one else wants to book you on the same level. Amazing. Uh, so, in order to rebrand you, it would be great if you get together with a famous girlfriend. Uh, oh my God. And, and for me, the concept of like a branded couple, the concept of that our most private relationships uh, actually also is uh, a business model. Uh, I was a little bit shocked when I heard these things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so, so it was these things that, that 
that was the starting point. Just to go back to you and, and your formative years, I've observed in life, uh, in my own entourage, that boys and young men who were raised by single mothers have a lot of empathy and respect for women and what it's like to be a woman. And your film Force Majeure, which is about a family on a ski holiday, when tiny cracks start to appear in the life of the couple, I find that that film is incredibly in tune with what goes on in the mind of a woman as well as of a man. I think that somehow you manage to understand both genders. And, and would you agree that, that your childhood or your upbringing shaped your view of womanhood and maybe that you're something of a feminist? <laughs> yes, but of course yeah. I am a feminist in, in one yeah. sense. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Also, since my uh, mother was politically engaged, she yeah. was discussing a lot about um, uh, the, the situation for women when it came to uh, working. And, uh, yeah. But also in the Swedish society, this is uh, something that has been a topic that you are brought up with if you are a Swede. Yeah. Uh, very early, you, you get to know as a man that uh, you should take half-half responsibility for the children. Uh, uh, right. Kindergarten is something that is for free in Sweden in order to make it easy for the women to get back to uh, work earlier. Equality in itself uh, like is, is an, a topic that is on the agenda. And maybe also Sweden is not so focused on like the the conservative ideas about the family structure. Uh-huh. Um, you, if you look at the Swedes, we, we have a lot of trust in the state yeah. <laughs> and we have a lot of trust in the individual. You talked about equality of gender. Uh, let's talk about a different kind of equality or the lack of it, and that is wealth equality and inequality. Uh, your last two films have been, I think, critical of extreme wealth and capitalism or have denounced the wealth gap. We live in an era where capitalism and income inequality and the 1% are very frequently spoken about because there is this widening income gap. And, you know, what do you think is good about capitalism or what's wrong with it? And and do you think the fact that audiences like your latest film so much has to do with the schadenfreude of watching the 1% suffer? <laughs> uh... It probably has something to do with that. But I think uh, capitalism is great in many ways, or market economy is really, really good in many ways. I mean, it, it have increased so many of the life qualities. We live longer. We have less child mortality. Mm-hmm. We have more money to, to, to spend. And mm-hmm. uh, there are certain kind of luxuries in, in our everyday life that definitely comes from uh, market economy and, and capitalism. But then, of course, you have the unregulated capitalism that is creating things that is not really for the human being. Uh, it's like almost what? For, yeah, if you look at housing and, and living today and yeah. for young people to get somewhere to live, uh, you, you basically have to get big loans and uh, be yeah. in debt and immediately are brought into this... Um, uh, a trap of debts where you have to work yeah. a lot in order to cover your life expenses. Mm-hmm. And so life becomes like um, something that you're always trying to catch up. Uh, right. And, uh, then right. you're not really using the, the qualities of capitalism because qual- the, the qualities of capitalism is that we build a certain kind of economical base so we can enjoy life. But then all of a sudden it's like that human beings is there to feed capitalism. 
And um, um, yeah, so that is one part of it, of course. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it is the extreme differences in when it comes to yeah. rich and poor, and um, uh, mm-hmm. that it it, it creates a, a society where which is more unstable and uh, where people don't seem to uh, be happy, basically. Uh, so in a more equal society, uh, you, you can tell that the life quality also goes up because people are getting more happy. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, would you say that you have some kind of viewpoint that you're trying to convey in the Triangle of Sadness? I mean, where are you? Where do you sit as the filmmaker when it comes to the 1% and income inequality and billionaires and and the rest. No, but stop bullshitting and pay taxes. <laughs> no, but okay. I, you know, uh, okay. In Sweden, you're you're quite um, uh, pro taxes. In Sweden, yeah. you have a, a trust in the state, so you believe if you pay taxes to the state, it's going. It's basically paying to yourself and um, yeah, building building the society. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you a technical question. If you'd like to share with me and, and listeners uh, these vomiting scenes in the Triangle of Sadness, I mean, they go on for many long minutes and some people couldn't stand watching. I, I, I watched all the way through. Uh, I mean, I found them kind of comical in a way, but is there, is, you know, a secret that you can share with us of how you how you could, like, show the, the vomiting? Well, I... <laughs> the start of the vomiting scene came from a fun idea that I got. That it was that the, the Marxist captain, uh, yeah, uh, the captain that I consider an idealist, Marxist, and an alcoholic, that he should played by Woody Har- Harrelson. Play, played uh, really, really nicely by Woody Harrelson. Yeah, that he should get really drunk together with the Russian oligarch, and they yeah. should start to play with the microphone system on the yacht. Yep. And during a storm, they should start to have a political discussion uh, over the microphone system. And uh, the captain should read from the communistic manifest. Uh, so it goes out in the speakers, in the cabins of the vomiting guests of this luxury yacht. I was just <laughs> fond of that idea. I thought it was an interesting uh, situation to explore. Um, so I needed a storm on the yacht. Uh, in order to make the passengers uh, seasick. Mm-hmm. And uh, early in the process, I, I, I asked uh, the set designer, uh, Josefine Åsberg, can we build the interior of a yacht on a gimbal, on a, on a big construction, so we can tilt the whole room 20 uh-huh. degrees and rock it, so we can simulate uh, like big waves on the ocean. Yeah. And Josephine was very, she's a kind of crazy person. So she says, yes, of course we can do that. Uh, and she did an extraordinary uh, job, actually, and built uh, the interior of this dining room and some of the corridors and uh, a couple of cabins uh, on, on the gimbal. So when we were shooting the, the vomiting scenes, uh, we were shooting on the set in the studio that we could rock. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it it was kind of chaotic. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a director that want to have control. So I really want to be able to control everything that I'm doing. Yeah. And when, when, the, when the set starts rocking, I didn't feel in control at all. Uh, yeah. And uh, actually part of the crew got seasick when we were shooting. Uh, oh, shooting no. the scene. <laughs> because we were spending, you know, like eight hours a day on this rocking set. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. 
And then we had, um, in order to simulate the vomiting, we used rose hip soap. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> so that's, yeah, with fruits, bits of fruit in it. Oh. And, and we had three ways of doing the, the vomiting. One was that we had a tube that was going into the mouth of the actor. Yep. That, that was connected to an um, a air pressure pump. So we could push a button and then, uh, yeah, the oh, rose yeah. hip soup came out of the mouth, <laughs> so to speak. Of the yeah. And then we did some some of the vomiting in in post-production afterwards. Yeah, oh, I see. Effect. Well, thanks for giving away so many secrets. I didn't think you were going to reveal <laughs> them. Yeah. Oh, yeah no, no, no problem. And yeah. then we also had an actress that could provoke vomiting herself. Oh, my Meles, that um, plays um, Vera on the yacht. Wow. Amazing. Okay, well, next uh, technical question. I wanted to ask you about your method of filmmaking because you don't actually, if I understood correctly, present the actors with any kind of script beforehand or not much, and you work out the script amongst yourselves on the shoot like there are texts, but then they can get their say on what they end up saying or not. And then you do something like 20 or more takes per scene. I mean, Can you describe the process a bit? Well, it's not true that I don't have a script. Uh, that probably comes from the starting point of my uh, experience as a filmmaker. Then I work more like with improvisation. But the three, four last films, uh, I have had a very detailed script. Oh, okay. But what I do with the actors is that uh, already when I, when I meet them and during the casting process, I do improvisations around the setup of a, of a scene. Uh, and uh, then they are very free uh, to play around with the idea. And for me, those improvisations is a part of the writing process. So when an actor is saying a line or doing something that I have not thought about myself that I think is interesting, yeah, uh, I quite often put it into the script. So uh, so it's it's a way of, for me to investigate the scenes and the possibilities of the scenes. And mm-hmm. then when we get to set and we are starting to shoot shoot uh, the scene, mm-hmm. then uh, once again, I'm asking the actors, even if we have the script, that don't push themselves too early and go into the next line if it's mm-hmm. not feels possible. The lines are flags that they should go around and we know where we are beginning and we know where we end. But we have to find uh, an, an authentic way to get to the next line. Mm-hmm. And very often what happens when uh, I'm directing otherwise is that the actors are pushing themselves and going too quickly into the next line. And I don't 100% believe in it. So the, the actual part of me believing what I'm seeing is, is so crucial when I'm directing. So if this that is in the script uh, have happened, what would it look like if it was playing out in front of our eyes? This is a big challenge for you as a director. When you have um, sure. a shoot yeah, yeah. Where, where you have a cost that is like extreme every day when you're doing a shooting, uh, in order to stay, uh, stay calm and stay cool so you actually can reach the result in the acting and what's taking place in front of the camera so you believe in it and not try to solve it first in the editing because it's, it has to happen on set for me. I have to see that I believe in the situation and, and in the acting and the, and, and the actions. And this, this is a big part of my work as a director. Yeah. 
Well, the acting is very good in your film, so I guess um, you're giving a lot of direction for that to happen. Um, just a um, cu- couple of last questions before we sign off here. Uh, your movie, The Square, which won the Palme d'Or in Cannes in 2017, is all about the art world and how it can be pompous and pretentious and pontificating about works that may not look like art to the rest of the population. And I believe that the main character is very loosely inspired by Daniel Birnbaum, um, if I'm not mistaken, a former director of the Moderna Museet in Stockholm and now the artistic director of Acute Art, who's someone I know fairly well. Um, just leaving aside Birnbaum in general, you know, how does someone in real life inspire a character in a script? Well, I was doing quite many interviews with Daniel when yeah. I was working on the script. And when I'm trying to understand someone that works as a curator on a on a big museum of contemporary art, yeah. uh, I need to have the experiences that you get from that profession. Right. And Daniel was very generous. He told me a lot about, okay, what you need to maneuver when you have that position. You're maneuvering the reputation of a museum. You're maneuvering controversy. Uh, uh, Artists that maybe is uh, dealing with content that is uh, provocative uh, at the same time that you are maneuvering people that are um, giving away a lot of money uh, to the museum, uh, like charity and and things like that that are funding the museum. And it was this, how to say, aspects of the position, which strings that are attached uh, to mm-hmm. the position that you're handling, that uh, Daniel gave away, uh, yeah, and, and, and told me. It's not really, I wouldn't say that Daniel is, uh, how to say, the role <laughs> model for Christian. <laughs> that would not be fair. <laughs> no, no, I don't think, I mean, they don't look, they don't look similar to me anyway. But um, in general, what do you think of the art world? Because it's a world that I, I inhabit in some way. I've just written a, a book about it called Takedown, and uh, I cover mm-hmm. it on a daily basis. But, I mean, do you think the art world world is, I mean, silly? Or, I mean, you, how do you find it? No, but I think that all of us are silly. And yeah. uh, I think that I'm interested in when we fail as human beings. I'm interested in when the expectations of who we are, uh, when certain kind of traditions is taking over uh, common sense. And uh, therefore, uh, the art world is, of course, how to say it, it is. It's an interesting word to to investigate. Yeah. And uh, and then after after modernism and postmodernism and so on, uh, there have been very strong traditions on the in the art world that is repeating itself um, over and over again. So if you go to a contemporary art museum, it, basically all over the world, you will have the same kind of experience. Yeah. And I see few examples where, uh, where an art museum is trying to challenge the convention of like MoMA, for example. MoMA, I guess, is like almost a role model of the contemporary yeah, is, art yeah. museums. Mm-hmm. So, so I was interested in, in going into to that world and point out, uh, Things that I that I think is uh, how to say yeah, that, that that you can laugh laugh about a little bit, and I wouldn't. I must say, like some people have to understand me. Uh, uh, if I would make a film about the uh, the world of cinema or, or the work yeah. uh, as a director, uh, I would be equally harsh towards oh, myself sure. and my own industry because 
the thing is that I'm much more interested in when we fail as human beings than when we succeed. And uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, this was my next question. I mean, uh, wh- why are you so interested in showing human beings failing? Because you are attracted to American cinema and Hollywood, as you know, there's a long tradition of the happy end. And, you know, in your movies, there are really no, ha- I mean, there are no happy ends. And, and you're always seeing things that are always going pear-shaped in your films, and you're interested in them going pear-shaped. But I just wanted to to know why well may, may, maybe that's the part of European cinema that I brought in okay you're <laughs> American storytelling but I always not yeah. the happy end no but I have to go back to sociology again uh, right. because I think that also we live in a time now where we are completely obsessed with the individual we are trying to explain the world uh, from the specific behavior of individual uh, people and actions it's almost when we look at news reporting we are uh, have we have a good guy and a bad guy, uh, and and a protagonist and an antagonist. The way that the movies have been told for a long time now, um, and uh, if you have the approach of stepping back a little bit and looking at our behavior and put the characters, the individuals that are dealing with the setup of the situations, uh, and put a spotlight on the setup that they are dealing with, then we are then we are like having more behavioristic point of view on our actions. And I don't blame the individual when we fail. I'm rather like, okay, look, with this giving circumstances of a situation, I would also be able to do these horrible things that the characters are doing. Uh, I see. And so sociology is also so entertaining, I think, often, uh, because it says something about my behavior uh, but without them having a main character that I uh, then consider a, a, a bad person. Um, and and the, failure, the failure for me gives us much more knowledge about who we are. Mm. Well, it doesn't seem like you have so, too much experience of it since you're now the proud possessor of two palm doors. But there you go. <laughs> yeah, I only fail you're not an pers- example. I fail personally in my personal life. That's, yeah. I have a lot of experience of that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so my final question is about your next film. I believe it's going to be about a long haul flight where the entertainment system breaks down, and I guess we can expect some, I don't know, some creepy things to happen. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, uh, it's called The Entertainment System is Down. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, there was someone writing uh, a thesis, I think it's called, like 1984. Uh, There was a literature professor that was comparing A Brave New World with 1984, those two books. And uh, he, he said, okay, 1984, he said, okay, we didn't end up in... 1984, the totalitarian system that is controlling uh, the, the people in the system uh, with a totalitarian in a totalitarian way. We ended up in a brave new world where the people are in love with an entertainment machine uh, that is constantly, how do you say, distracting us and making us passive. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that this was written 1984. And if you look at our behavior today when we are basically uh, dopamine addicts when it yeah. comes to scrolling the screens. Yeah. We can constantly distract ourselves. 
Uh, and when I'm on a flight, uh, it's uh, one of the few times when I'm not connected to to internet. Yeah, and uh, it makes me behave in a little bit of different way. <laughs> but then I often have the entertainment system, so I can watch movies. So I, I'm not yeah. I, I I'm not completely left alone to my thoughts, so to speak. So yeah. I thought it would be interesting to have a long haul flight where the passengers quite soon after takeoff gets the horrible news from the crew <laughs> that the entertainment system is not working. Uh, and with with that setup, look at our behavior, uh, look at, a, at the positive sides of it, look at the downsides of it. Uh, modern human beings dealing with, with uh, circumstances that we are not that used to deal with anymore. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Anyway, so we've come to the end of this show. Uh, Ruben, I wanted to thank you sincerely for being with us because it is our second birthday. Uh, you're celebrating our second anniversary with us with this particular show. And it gives me particular pleasure because the co-founder of the show, Karina Pierre-Rochard, is from Gothenburg. Uh, so <laughs> we've come full circle by um, bringing a Swede in as our um, guest here. Um, thank you so much, Ruben. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you and all the very best for the entertainment system breaking down. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Ruben Ostland for accepting our invitation to appear on Culture Blast and celebrate our second birthday in style. It gives us particular pleasure to host him because he is, like the co-founder of this podcast, Karina Pierre-Rochard, from Sweden. Karina is the executive producer of this podcast and a life force without whom the show would simply not exist. Nor would it exist without the exceptional editing and producing gifts of Ben Eschmade, who handles sound production the way Yves Saint Laurent handled haute couture. I cannot end the program without also thanking the two other incredible talents who launched it with us two years ago. Our original logo designer, the artist Julie Rafalski, and the incredible composer of the soundtrack we all love, Oliver Scherer. That's C-H-E-R-E-R, an artist you can find and listen to on Spotify and other platforms. If you like our show, please subscribe right away and spread the word far and wide and give us some reviews. It's wonderful to celebrate our second birthday with you. I'll be back soon with another superstar of culture.